Good morning, and welcome to another of our Wednesdays in the Word. I'm so glad you could be with me today as we continue in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans, unfolding it together. Today I'm picking up our reading in chapter 4 of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 13 of that chapter and reading on through verse 17 of that same chapter. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Briefly, by way of review, as you've been with me, you understand in these opening chapters of the book of Romans, we've been learning about the universal need. And that universal need is that we need a solution to our sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. The issue is not merely that none of us is perfect. The issue is that sin matters. Why does it matter? Because The God who is really there is a holy and just and righteous God, a loving God, certainly, but also holy, just, and righteous. He can't stop being any of those things, and one of the consequences of it is that no one can dwell in the presence of that God, short-term or long-term, in terms of eternity, if they are not holy and righteous. Sin cannot dwell in his presence. And so when we sin, in that day we die, separated from the God who is really there. And therefore we have to have a solution to the sin. But as the opening chapters examined, there are no solutions to our sin. We can't take away our spot. We cannot do away with the consequence of having become a sinner. Religious activity won't do it. Turning over a new leaf won't do it. Religious ceremonies and laws won't do it. We are, as Ephesians 2 puts it, hopeless and helpless without God in this world. And as Hebrews 9 tells us, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, to face judgment. The reality is that we are in an impossible dilemma. It would stay impossible except for the fact that there's a God who is also loving there. And in his love, he came and provided a solution to our sin. That solution was sending his son into this world to die on our behalf, to take our sin and the penalty of it upon himself, and then offer to us his perfect righteousness. That's why in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes. You see, there's no answer for the solution. There's no answer to the problem of humanity apart from what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. As we place our faith in him and what he has accomplished on the cross, 
We find forgiveness. We find what we've been examining as credited righteousness, justification in the sight of God. Chapter 4 began building on that foundation by examining Abraham and King David and helping us to understand biblically that they were saved the same way, by faith, by trusting in God's promise, a promise that entailed the coming Messiah, the coming provision for sin. Solution to sin has always been the same, trusting in God's provision, ultimately, to solve what we can't solve on our own. Last time, we were looking at the question of religious rites or sacraments versus faith. Can a religious rite, a religious sacrament, save us, solve our sin problem? And of course, as we were examining that, we discovered the answer is no. (laughs) The Jews thought the religious rite or slash sacrament of circumcision was the critical issue. Then without circumcision, God would never accept you. You would never have a future and a hope. You could not be part of the people of God. But of course, the answer to that, remember in in chapter 4, verse 3, we encountered that principle, what does the scripture say? Because by the way, there's no answer apart from that. Any question that arises, the fundamental issue in it is, what does the scripture say? So as we turn and we see what the scripture says, we discover, no, Abraham was credited with righteousness, justified before God, long before any physical act of circumcision. It was in his confidence and trust in the promises that God had made to him. Abraham, therefore, was saved by faith, and therefore was the father of all who approach God by faith, who take God's promises and rest their eternity in those promises, trusting in God's solution. His circumcision was merely an outward sign later on of this inward confidence and trust in the gospel. Therefore, all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, in the promise of God, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, everyone who places their faith in Christ is now a child of Abraham, following in his family footsteps. He is the father of all who believe, verse 11 tells us. Now, today, in verses 13 to 17, we continue to examine lessons emerging, as we see what the scripture says, out of the life of Abraham. And verse 17 is our critical verse here. In that verse, it talks about a God who calls into existence things that do not exist, a creator God. That is the only one of those, and that is the God whom we worship. Our justification, our credited righteousness ultimately rests in the fact that the God who is really there can call into existence the things that do not exist. Now let's unpack that phrase. Let's unfold it and try to make sense out of it. God had made some amazing, wonderful promises to Abraham. Promises Abraham was trusting. He had made a promise to Abraham that he would have an heir, a son. And this promise came and had not yet been fulfilled, but it came to him when he was an elderly man. He had made him a promise that he would have a son. 
He had made him a promise of a coming offspring. He had made him a promise that there would be a nation that he, his descendants would have. And he made him a promise that he would be the father of nations. <clears throat> a promise about the whole world. And yet here was the reality that as we read the scriptures was true of his life. At the time these promises came, and for many years following those promises, Abraham did not yet have a physical descendant. He did not yet have a son. Later, God would work a miracle when he was beyond childbearing years and his wife Sarah was, and they would have that child, Isaac, because of a miraculous action on the part of God who calls into existence things that don't exist. But at the time, he was trusting in a promise that was not yet realized. He did not yet have a son, but he believed God about it. He did not yet have a land. He was dwelling in tents, even in Canaan, which would later on be Israel. He was dwelling in a tent. He didn't have that land. He was a sojourner there, a pilgrim, an exile. He did not have a nation. He did not have the world. <laughs> he did not yet have the offspring. Well, is that the same thing as the son? No, it's different. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into the offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promise of the eventual nations of the world was tied to the offspring that would come. Not Isaac, but eventually the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these promises had been made to Abraham. Amazing promises, really. But he did not have any of them realized in his time. <laughs> when these promises came and he trusted God about them, they were all promises, not realities in the sense of flesh and bone, right here, right now, in space and time. He was trusting God about what he could not see. He was believing that God would bring into existence what didn't exist. What a wonderful description of biblical faith. Abraham, without evidence, believed God's promise. He believed that God could call into existence what didn't exist. He knew God could bring about a son who did not yet exist. He could bring about a nation. He could bring about a Messiah. He could bring about the world. More importantly, he believed that the God who was there could do something to make him forgiven and justified in God's eyes. He knew he was a sinner. And miracle of miracles, as wonderful and amazing a miracle as it would be to have a son, an offspring, a nation, a world. The solution to sin was even more amazing. God would have an answer for his sin. An answer that did not, at that point in time, exist. But God could make it exist in his own timetable. He believed that would happen. Why? Because he believed that nothing was impossible with the God who is really there. Nothing is impossible 
with the God who can bring into existence what does not now exist. In Genesis 18, in one of the encounters Abraham had with God, this is the statement in verse 14 of that chapter. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. In other words, the, the question posed, or the issue posed to Abraham at that point, long past the time that he could uh, physically have had a son, God says, is anything impossible with God? And of course, the answer rhetorically is, well, no. Why? Because he is the God who calls into existence what doesn't exist. So nothing's too hard for him. Do you see God that way? By the way, later in the scripture, there was another who was called upon to trust that God, our God, with promises that seemed certainly in a sense even more impossible. Think of the Luke chapter 1 in the encounter of the angel Gabriel with Mary. Speaking to Mary about the promise that she would bear this son who was the Messiah, the promised one. And she would bear that son, not through the normal physical means, but God would move and miraculously work within her and bring about this conception in her in her womb, and that baby would be born. And uh, miraculous, how can this be? In fact, she poses that question to the angel of Gabriel. She says in Luke chapter 1, verse 34, how, how will this be? I'm a virgin. This is what you're talking about seems impossible. And then the angel Gabriel answers her in verses 37 and 38 of Luke chapter 1. Listen to these words. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Meaning, I agree. I believe what you're saying is true. Nothing is impossible for God. And what seems impossible to me, I'm going to trust him about. Why? Because I believe that the God who is really there can call into existence the things that don't exist. Mary believed that. Abraham believed that. And he knew that God would bring about in his own time and way that fulfilled promise of a son, a nation, a world, a Messiah, and his own personal acceptance and forgiveness. Now, how do we draw this to our lives? How does this apply to me and to you? Why does God give us that illustration in Romans chapter 4 after laying this groundwork of our sin, our dilemma, our impossible circumstance, the wonder of the cross, and the idea of the imputed righteousness, the credited righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it makes perfect sense if you think about it for a minute. We need to learn from Abraham's example about trusting God. Consider the reality that the God who is really there can call into existence things that don't exist. Think of that as it relates to your own righteousness. The fact of the matter is, today, at this moment in time, you are not righteous and I'm not righteous. We are sinners. All of us have to admit that truth. We're only deceiving ourselves if we don't acknowledge that we've stumbled, that we've fallen. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Remember Romans 3.23? <laughs> That's the truth. That is the current reality. Just like Abraham 
current reality, old, beyond the childbearing years, no son, no nation, no land, no Messiah. We can relate. We're sinners. But the fact of the matter is, God makes a promise to us. He says, if we will place our faith in the Son he sent into this world to die on our behalf, to be made sin for us, if we place our faith in him, he will forgive us, he will redeem us, he will propitiate that sin. His blood would be sufficient to pay for our sin. And then he makes another promise to us. He says, and not only that will be true, but I will credit to you, to your life, that perfect life that the Lord Jesus Christ lived in this world. It'll become as if we hadn't sinned. That is the credited righteousness. The truth of the matter is, as you and I stand before God, that is as incredible a promise as the promises made to Abraham. They are promises about what does not currently exist, but will be true, because God can take and call into existence the things that don't currently exist. The gospel, this power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, actually depends upon that fact, that God the God who is really there can call into existence the things that do not exist. Right now, I am a sinner. Forgiveness and righteousness do not exist for me left to myself. There's nothing I can do to change my condition. But God says, when I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he brings into existence what didn't exist. I find accredited righteousness before him. I find redemption. I find true forgiveness. I find as far as the east is from the west, so far as he remove my transgressions from me. Can you believe, like Abraham gave the example, in the promises of God, who can call into existence the things that don't exist? That is the essence of of the gospel. Can I believe that God means it when he says, when I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am forgiven, I am cleansed, I'm accepted, I'm adopted as his child, I have the credited righteousness of Christ given to me. Are you believing in those truths? Not because you see the tangible proof in front of you, but because God calls into existence what doesn't exist. Can you believe in that sort of God? So you understand now why I believe he adds this illustration to us to further confirm the wonder of faith in the gospel. Now there's another question, and I don't want to leave our study of these verses without addressing it. There's another question in these verses, and it has to do with this kingdom promise that was given to Abraham, the promise of a nation, the promise of being the father of many nations, part of that inheritance question. And so the question filtrating through these verses is this. Who inherits those promises that were made to Abraham? Who inherits the promise of many nations? And of course, that promise of many nations is the promise of the Messianic kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that which we will see upon his return to this earth. His millennial kingdom will be a worldwide kingdom. All the nations of the earth will be under it. It'll be a time in that kingdom when all of the promised prophetic promised boundaries of Israel will finally be realized. They've never been realized to this point, but they will be realized at that period of time. And that kingdom of the Messiah will go into all of the nations. All of the world will be under the rule of the Messiah. So who is actually going to be part of that? Who is going to inherit the promise to be in it and with it and part of God's great intention and plan at that era of history? An important question to answer, isn't it? And by the way, this particular time frame we're talking about, this promise of many nations, uh, was developed at length for us in Daniel chapter 2. Backdrop to that, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylon, had received a dream from God, and God's dream was, in a sense, to rebuke him, to show him, as prideful as he was, that his kingdom, as powerful as it was, was only temporary. It was just part of an, a sequencing of Gentile, worldly nations, all of which would only live and operate within set boundaries that God would establish. And eventually all would fail, that they would be replaced eventually by this Messianic kingdom. And the picture of the dream was a statue. Go back and read that on your own. I think you'll find it really fascinating. But a statue, uh, and over time, a statue with different types of metal and stone in it. And over time, a stone comes and hits at the base of that statue after the successive waves of human nations. It destroys the statue, and then that stone becomes a mountain that eventually fills the earth. Love to talk more about that today, not time to do that. But that's the picture that is emerging here in this portion of Romans 4 the promised messianic kingdom. The fact of the matter is, in answer to the question, who's inheriting that promise, who's going to be part of the wonder of those days, is that all of the redeemed Jews and Gentiles will reign with Christ there. All who are now the children of Abraham by faith will be part of what God is going to accomplish in that future day. The redeemed Jews will be reigning in a restored Israel with the Messiah. The redeemed Gentiles will be part of that Messianic kingdom as it spreads and oversees all of the rest of the nations of the world. The true heirs of the promise will include all of the people who have placed their faith in those promises of God. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about the Messianic kingdom, that millennial kingdom, and of course, a lot more can be said about what God's intentions and purposes are in that. But my purpose again today is not to do that, but just to take that question, that issue, and to say, God is using this as an illustration of faith. God calls into existence what doesn't now exist. That's the reason salvation is possible. That's the reason credited righteousness and forgiveness can be mine. That's the reason that a nation that is not yet, a father of nations that has not yet occurred, will occur in God's timetable of history. And I can trust in a God who is there. 
And that's the reason why the promise to be part of it is for all of the children. He will make and bring into existence what does not currently exist. We will be in that kingdom not because we've followed some laws, not because we've turned over new leaves, not because we've gone through some religious rite or sacrament, whether it was some sort of baptism, some sort of circumcision, or some other religious idea. No, no. We're part of that and part of justification because we've trusted the promise God has made to us and then he in turn brings into existence what doesn't exist. It is not works, merit, ethnicity, sacraments. It is faith and faith alone. Remember again, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who what? Believes. Everyone who believes. That is the fundamental question. By the way, also indirectly tears sells us. Listen, there's a warning. <laughs> Anyone who tries to go after that inheritance, tries to grab a hold of that promise through their works and through the law, will end up in disaster because the law brings wrath. Why? Because all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> and the wages of sin is death. It brings wrath. Your intentions are not the problem. Your methodology is the problem. <laughs> there is no solution. There is only one way to the Father. One way to inherit the promises. One way to find forgiveness. Justification a future and a hope in inheritance. That is through the Lord Jesus Christ, who in John 14 tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but through me. I hope on this day, you are one of those people who have come to the Father through him, who have in your own way believed that that Father is one who can bring into existence those things that don't exist, such as your forgiveness, your cleansing, your righteousness in Christ. And that you believe that there's nothing impossible with that God, including the impossibility of forgiveness. Are you resting in him? I hope so. Well, join me next time as we continue further into the fourth chapter and continue to examine some of these issues related to the lessons emerging for us out of the life of Abraham. God bless.